Thank you. I gotta get, grab my props here a minute. I I gotta tell you guys, this is the only second time I've been uh, preaching in front of you. Uh, today I'm a little nervous, not because you guys aren't hospitable. You're a wonderful church family. This this message has kind of broken me the past few weeks as I'm studying it, so I apologize in advance. I will probably get teary-eyed. I got my tissues and my waterproof mascara, so I think I'm okay, and we'll dive in. We're going to read John 12 from uh, the NIRV, and it should be on the screen here. Uh, And in other, this this passage, like Mindy said in the, the Jesus Storybook, I'm reading, this is in three of the Gospels. Um, In some of the different Gospels, the woman is identified, and sometimes she's not, but in in John 12, she's identified as Mary. So this is, Mary pours perfume on Jesus at Bethany. Uh, We're going to do one through eight. It was six days before the Passover feast. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Lazarus was the one Jesus had risen from the dead. A dinner was given at Bethany to honor Jesus. Martha served the food. Lazarus was among the people at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took, out, or took about a pint of pure nard. It was an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the sweet smell of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot didn't like what Mary did. She was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He, later, he was going to hand Jesus over to his enemies. <clears throat> Judas said, why wasn't this perfume sold? Why wasn't the money given to poor people? It was worth a year's pay. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He said it because he was a thief. Judas was in charge of the money bag. He used it to help himself to what was in it. Leave her alone. Jesus replied, the perfume was meant for the day I am buried. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. If you have helped a elementary age child with math in the past decade, you might notice, some of you are laughing, uh, maybe you're a kid's hope mentor or you're a parent yourself or you're a grandparent who's helping with homework, Things are a little different. I have a picture of new math and old math, right? So a lot of us, uh, myself included, learned old math. You just memorize what you need to do. You, you know, categorize the columns, and you add the two to the nine, and you carry the one, and you do all that. This is new math, um, and even looking at it, I'm not even sure that I'm going to explain it well, but essentially what they're trying to teach kids is how to kind of make those calculations that we just automatically have learned that you just you just do it you don't you just you just add it right like we we can't really explain how we get from 2 plus 9 equals 11 or you know 72 plus 39 equals 111 but what they're trying to do is get kids okay what's the nearest 10 or what's the nearest 5 so 72 what's the nearest 10 80 so we add 8 to 72 and then we have our 1 cuz 9 minus eight is one, and then we have to add the other three tens, and then we finally get to 111. But to us, it looks very strange, right? And we're like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? When I was trying to help my kids with math, 
uh, this past spring when they were home learning. I was like, I I'm going to have to watch some YouTube videos about this. But what they're trying to do is make full sense of what the problem is, not necessarily make these unwritten in-betweens that you have to figure out and you just do it because you just know it. So when we had to show our work, essentially we had to carry the one, and that was it. Now when they have to show their work, they have to delineate out this number line, and they have to really show that they get what they're doing and all the jumps that they're making. And it's really easy for us to look at that and say, that's silly. Why would you add to subtract, right? That's not in this column, but or in this problem, but that's, you know, the, in, in subtraction, they have to add to subtract. And I was what? It's easy for us to just say, why would you do it that way? What are you doing? You just do it. You just, you just add it. It can cause us to get confused, right? We have logical, earthly math, which makes sense to us. We also, as citizens of heaven, we live under the math of grace. And that's a math that doesn't calculate in the same logic. Because God's math is different than our math. And sometimes when we see other people calculating with God's math, it makes us think, what are you doing? The way we look at the world is through logic and reason, and we calculate and we come to conclusions, and then we make educated decisions based on the information and statistics and data we have accessible to us. And I'm not dogging on statistics and accounting and math, but we tend to only live in that camp. And as citizens of heaven and of the kingdom, we are called to God's math. And in his kingdom, it, that's just not the same. And we can see here in this story, we have this woman in John. It's Mary, and we're not exactly sure how she got the pure nard. It was extremely expensive. And it would have been maybe a gift, maybe a payment, possibly even part of her inheritance. She's not married. We, we know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they kind of all live together, so clearly Mary's not married. It could have been from her father. It could have been from an unsavory way that she acquired it. We don't really know, and it doesn't really matter. But the reality is this is her 401k, right? Like this is her retirement plan. This is what she has when she doesn't have anything else. This is her just in case I lose everything, I have this. And even for us in this day and age, imagine something that's worth your year's salary, right? Like I work part-time, and I can't imagine just throwing something down worth my salary on the ground and shattering it. Even to us, it makes us be like, that's a little extreme, right? I don't even know if I own anything worth my year's salary. Maybe my car, that's about it. But Judas, Judas is here like many of us. He's critical of things that don't make sense, right? What are you doing? What is this? He's thinking selfishly. And John likes to add some commentary here because he's a thief, and so he's going to think of himself and make himself look good in front of other people, and he's going to look all moral by saying, hey, we should have given this to the poor. But Mary, Mary sees beyond this earthly math. She sees Jesus for who he really is. And she can give her most precious thing in life, 
her security, her thing to fall back on. She can give it because she sees that he is life. He is her security. He is where she can fall. She sees God's mask. And she sees that nothing else matters but this man. This man is everything. Jesus stands in the place that could provide any comfort, any satisfaction, and she sees that. And her act of worship is just to pour over Jesus. She can't help it just to give him everything. It's just she doesn't know what else response to make. And church, this is where I'm getting broken up into pieces about this passage because when Mindy and I were talking about the Gospel of Mark when we were doing the first study of our Lent series, we talked about how the disciples just got up and left. And I had a really honest moment with myself that said, I don't think I would be ready to do that. And I, I say that because I don't think I'm the only one of us. You know, we don't see the disciples say, you know, Jesus, that's a really good proposal. Let me think about it and pray about it and let me get back to you in a week, right? They just drop everything and go. And as a parent, right, like you think of these young men and I, I even ask my little kids, like even just going in the neighborhood, where are you going? When are you going to come home? Who are you going to be with? What are you going to do? And they don't think about any of those things. They just follow him. And, and I, I got to be honest with myself. I, I kind of like my kids. I, I just wouldn't just leave. I like my comfortable home. I, I like the things that I do. I, I like everything about my life. I wouldn't just walk away from it. And I don't think I'm the only one of us. And the beautiful thing I see about the disciples, right, is that they didn't have the benefit of this full narrative. They, they didn't see the victory of the resurrection and say, absolutely, I want to follow this man. He is everything. They just left. They were so compelled by who he was and what he embodied before even seeing it with their own eyes. And we have this, and we still are like, yeah, hang on a second. I got I to gotta wrap up some stuff. I need, I need to do an exit interview, and, and I got I to gotta have an exit strategy, and I got to prioritize my to-do list before I can get to you, Jesus. It does. It, it shatters me a little bit to admit that. But I think we owe it to Jesus to be honest with ourselves about what we are actually willing to give up to follow him. And some of you are a lot like me. I'm a cradle-to-grave Christian. I have never known a day that someone didn't share Jesus' love with me. And that is such a gift, right? That is, it is a beautiful, gracious thing that, that we have never had to know a day without God's grace in our life. But the problem with that is that he becomes part of the scenery and we take him for granted. <coughs> Excuse me. We lose perspective of who he is because he's just always been there. And that is so beautiful. It is so beautiful he has always been there. But 
sometimes I wonder, you know, excuse me, I don't know if any of the other you have this issue, but you know, when you do laundry and then you don't get around to folding it or putting it away, you just put it in the basket, you just shove it in one. Well, and then you do that again, and then pretty soon you have like four baskets of laundry, and it just becomes part of the scenery. We don't see that we haven't really embraced who he is every single day. It's so easy just to add him to the ordering of our life. We just put him on the shelf. You know, that's where I found this. I found it on the shelf. I didn't find it on my nightstand. We just stick him up there and go find him when we need him. The truth is that in sending Jesus Christ and the atoning sacrifice for sin, God brings us back into relationship with him. Jesus' death brings an end to both sin's condemning and influential powers. Through Christ's death, we are granted undeserved forgiveness. And our gratitude and astonishment to this gift is directly related to the depth of our understanding regarding the seriousness of our sin. To the extent that we think less of the seriousness of our sin and its effect on us, right? Sin does this. It renders us dead to God. We are unable to respond to him. We are under the full fury of wrath and made us his enemies. That is the reality of sin. And so many of us, because we've always lived under grace, we've always lived under him as our savior, we have lost track of that seriousness. And when we forget the seriousness of our sin and its effect on us, we will also think less of the magnitude of God's love, right? When we don't think that we're that bad, I mean, we're not the lowest common denominator of morality here, right? I mean, we all come to church on Sunday, so, like, I'm not so bad. We live in a world where we don't think it's so bad. But I want to propose, think about this. When we make, we diminish our own sin, we make grace cheap. We cheapen what God has given us. Essentially what we're saying is that my sin, my sin is not that bad, right? My heart is, doesn't need that much transformation. I don't need God's transforming power that much. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a theologian um, during World War II. He lived in Germany, and he was one of the few voices that called out the German church's complacency to the travesty that was unfolding around them. And he actually lost his life because Hitler wasn't very fond of his boldness. And I think he writes this book called The Cost of Discipleship. I believe it's while he's imprisoned. And he's calling the church out. And he's got this to say about cheap grace. Cheap grace means grace as doctrine, as principle, as system. It means forgiveness of sins as a general truth. It means God's love as merely a Christian idea of God. Now what he's talking about I was, a, I was a youth director for many years, so I always had lessons with props, right? So what he's talking about, I've got a little visual for us to understand. Cheap grace, my tissue's just okay. Cheap grace is like this. 
Here's us. This is our life. And this is how we treat grace. Now, when we make grace cheap, there's not a huge, you know, tone difference between what I just put in there and this water, right? Some of you know that's oil, right? So that's what we do when we make grace cheap. We can't really tell that it's been part of us. It just stays on the surface, and it's, it makes a good perspective looking down. But when you look underneath, it's not there. It hasn't transformed anything. It hasn't infested the water. It hasn't manifested itself into the fiber of its being. And this is what we do when we make grace cheap. We say, that's good. It has a compartment in my life, but it doesn't infiltrate my life. It doesn't change everything about me. It doesn't make me surrender myself. It, it, it doesn't make me do all, everything different. But costly grace, costly grace does something a little different. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. Costly grace becomes part of us. And there's no denying it. It's inextractable. It just is who we are now. Right? There's no way to get the red dye out of that. I mean, there probably is, chemically. Brianna is saying yes. Uh, but, <laughs> but realistically, that would be really challenging. It probably involves heat. Yep. So here we are. This is what happens to us when we let grace transform us. Costly grace is the gospel that has to be sought again and again. The gospel has to make us die to the kingdom of self. It costs us something to become this. It does. Bonhoeffer says it's costly because it's discipleship, which requires us to move and surrender, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it does. It costs people their lives. But it's grace because it thereby makes them live. Above all, I, I want you to hear this. This is, what, this is what is breaking me. Grace is costly because it cost God everything. Right? When we make grace cheap, we're saying, You're, you, you dying means very little to me. Nothing can be cheap that cost God his son. Like, let's just sit in that for a second. God died for us. When we make grace cheap, it is unmerciful. Cheap grace does not open the way to Christ, it closes it to us. It doesn't call us to discipleship, it hardens us to disobedience. We end up with this hard heart that, that can't hear the words of truth, that, that isn't loving, that doesn't see people as image bearers. It hardens us. 
and grace itself, just the word and the idea becomes empty. Bonhoeffer says, blessed are they for whom following Jesus Christ means nothing other than living from grace and for whom grace means following Christ. We must not just believe. We must follow. And church, I'm the first one to say this. I, I live too much like I'm a career Christian. I think a lot of us do. Instead of this fully abundant life in Christ that just makes us sit at his feet. Like Mary, she can't help but do it. It just, she walks into this room and just falls at his feet and gives him everything. And we, we have gotten bored and we act bored by God. The Bible is not just good news, right? My kids have, have a thing on the weekends. Uh, when they come back to school on Monday, they share the good news. Like, good news, we had a party. Good news, I got a pet bunny, right? This is more than just that. This is the best news. And I want to break this down just, just so we don't forget what it is, right? The creator of the known universe squeezed himself into a tiny human infant body in order to live among us, to reveal himself in love, and to take that life of love and lay it down as a sacrifice so we never have to live with the eternal consequence of sin and death. And he transferred that victory to us through the coming and empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that not only do we have a Savior who intercedes for us, but we have God himself who is with us and will never leave us this is the best news. Amen. It is. And yet, we act like it doesn't really matter that much. This is the kind of news that just should just make us buckle at the knees. And we take it for granted. I take it for granted. And I got to submit to you, I, there's not too many times where I'm reading this right. Because if I'm reading it right, it should break me every time. And if it's not breaking you, you're not reading it right. There are brothers and sisters around the world, and some of you who attended IF gathering, a lot of this, that shot us through the heart. There is a, they did an interview with a pastor from Iran in five years, the country of Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. In five years, from not having nationals who were believers to a million people in an underground church. Because this breaks them. And they are so persecuted, and when they become Believers, and they take Christ on, they're like, you know what, if I, if I die today, like they have to have conversations between husband and wife about getting raped, getting killed, getting kidnapped, and saying, here's what I want you to do when it happens to me. I don't have to have those conversations with my husband. I'm very privileged. So are you. But this pastor from Iran, he and his wife, uh, his wife was a radical Muslim, and 
and she became a Christian, and they moved to the States for a little while, and she said, I want to go back. I want to go back to the persecution in Iran because the church in the Western church is under a satanic lullaby. Ooh. As soon as we heard those words, we were like, ooh, oh, that hurts, but mm mm-hmm. The Western church is under a satanic lullaby, and every time I try to wake up, it gets louder and faster, and I'm starting to feel sleepy too. That's what she said to her husband. I want to go back where my life is on the line. Because she understood the cost of bringing the good news to people who didn't have it yet. And we got some waking up to do, church. We just do. We've been under this lullaby that makes us real sleepy, right? It's like we went to see The Wizard of Oz yesterday at South Christian. It's like the, 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 the flowers in the forest, the posies, poppies, excuse me, thanks, Peyton. The poppies, and they just make them real sleepy. Before you even realize it, you're just asleep. And it happens to us. We have everything at our fingertips, and it lulls us, doesn't it? But I'll do a couple more shameless plugs here because at If Gathering, they also shared with us that there are 3,800 people groups around the world who don't even have access to this. Can you imagine? I can't. I cannot imagine never having the word of God in my hand, never being able to read Jesus' words for myself, never even hearing the name of Jesus spoken to me or over me, and there are millions, millions of people who don't have it. And then when they get it, they showed us a video of a village who received the New Testament for the first time, and they were, they were just filled with excitement and joy, and they couldn't stop praising and yelling and screaming and praying and thanking God just for this book. And, and we just put it up on the shelf, right? This hasn't really, if you're like me, it hasn't really cost you a whole lot. I've never lost friends. I've never lost family. I've never had to give up many of my possessions. Christine Kane, she was another speaker at If Gathering, and she's an evangelist out of Australia. She said, she shared the story about um, some Chinese Christian leaders who came to her and said, Christine, Will you teach us how to lead the next generation of our church? Because the only thing we were ever taught and learned how to do is to share Jesus with our prison guard on the way to our execution. Like, let's not let that get lost. The only thing they learned is to evangelize to someone who was about to murder them. And, and we don't have to do that, right? They have a lot to teach us. And that's what she said. Uh, let's reverse this, right? Like, they have a lot to teach the Western church. And I'm not saying I am not advocating that we instantly become martyrs, but I do think we need to start reminding ourselves that following Jesus will cost us laying down the kingdom of self. Because, friends, he is everything. 
he is, and shouldn't he be worth it to us? Don't we owe it to be honest with ourselves and say, yeah, you know, Jesus, this has not been my posture. This is not what the gospel brings me to. I can't even figure out the name of my neighbor, <laughs> let alone bow at your feet and give you everything. This grace, it is so immense, and it is just indescribable, and it should stir fire in us, like in Mary, where we just can't help it, we just fall. This is amazing, and it's, it is this amazing gift. It is amazing grace. As we pray, as we close, I'm going to kneel, and I know from some of you it's not physically possible. I'm going to kneel on behalf of us. And if you would like to join me, I would just invite you to posture yourselves like Mary today. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and you, you are holy, holy, holy. And we just run out of words for what you're worth. And so I just let, we're going to sit in silence for just a second, just to recognize how indescribable you are. God, what you, you've done is the best news. Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts right now that it would not be lost on us. God, we open our hands. We literally open our hands and outstretch our fingers as we pour our kingdom of self at your feet. Our preferences, our wanting control, our wanting to be right, to have people do what we want them to do. God, we act like that's the most precious thing to us. God, would you receive this offering and cause us to examine this week what we are holding so dear. God, I confess for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that we have made your grace cheap. Put us in the posture of Mary at your feet, seeing clearly that you are everything and you are worth everything. Open our eyes to the truth before us that we've been set free from sin and its effects by your amazing, costly grace. It is in Jesus' name we are able to pray. Amen. I invite the team to come forward and let's sing about that amazing grace.